Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right, my friends. Welcome back to Wednesday Wake Up. Thanks for joining us. Last week we started working through one of Gil Fronstel's Dharma Talks, which I received as an essay, like a translation, on evaluating practice, which I thought would be a great way to start 2023, since I'm such a big fan of that kind of work. So what I'm going to do each week for the next few weeks through January is go into the different sections of his talk and just make some commentary. And then uh, if you're if you want to see the essay itself or the transcription of his talk, you can just click on the link in the podcast. So it will be in every week that we're referencing it. I'll have I'll have the link so you can list uh, so you can read the actual uh, full essay. But I will read each week the section that we're going to be referring to, so you can hear the parts that I've been reading. So last week the Dharma talk was called "Skillful Ways to Evaluate Your Practice," and last week we talked about value judgments, and how the Dharma itself works by us committing to a certain set of values that we want to bring into our hearts, in our minds, and the world, and that we make a lot of judgments in the Dharma for the sake of this awakening. And so last week we talked about that a little bit, and about how evaluating the practice was an essential part of the Dharma. It follows falls under the enlightenment factor of discernment, and it can be found here and there throughout the Dharma, but it's, it's an act of discernment to evaluate where we are on the path, where we're going, what our intentions are, and without that evaluation, it's hard for us to find direction. It's hard for us to find a real grip and a solid foundation in the practice. So let me read to you uh, the intro and this other small section of Gill's here, and then I'll make some commentary on intentionality this evening. So this is what Gil says. From last week, we read this. After a person has been meditating for some time, it's important that he or she evaluate how the practice is developing. Is it working? Does it need adjustment? Is it the right practice to be doing? Can it be improved? Some of this evaluation can be done on one's own, some with a teacher and some with friends. This should be done in a balanced way, not too little and not too much. Sometimes we don't evaluate enough, maybe because of complacency or excessive reliance on faith in the practice, or teachings that may downplay the role of intelligent reflection. At other times, we might over-evaluate and tie ourselves up in knots, which can undermine our progress. Below is a useful list that can serve as a guide for evaluating your practice. This first section underneath is called Motivation. Gill says this, First, ask yourself what your motivation is. Why are you practicing? Meditation practice flourishes when it is supported by clear intention. There are many answers to this question. Because no one should decide for you what your goals are, it is useful to spend some time reflecting on this. What do you really want? What is the heart's deepest wish? 
there are long-term and short-term motivations. Experiences of realization may be worthy long-term goals, but in the short term it can be useful to have modest aims, such as cultivating small but noticeable improvements in concentration, non-distraction, compassion, or patience, as well as small immediate movements towards letting go and experiencing freedom. I have found there is a beautiful way in which practicing with immediate, realistic goals allows for a steady maturing into some of the more developed areas of meditation practice. It's also important to know if your aspiration is appropriate for yourself given your present life situation. If for reasons of time, opportunities, abilities, or disposition, you are not suited for the goals you have set for yourself, then the primary result will be frustration, a state that is counterproductive to a practice meant to increase freedom from suffering. While it can be important to allow for grand aspirations, there is no need to be afraid of our heart's deepest wish. It is important to consider which steps are realistic. For example, if our body carries a lot of tension, it may be important first to focus on meditation reflecting on deep physical relaxation. Or, if our minds are easily distracted, it might be helpful to cultivate mental discipline before hoping for enlightenment. First, Gill says, ask yourself, what is your motivation? I focused on this sentence here below it, where he says, meditation practice flourishes when it is supported by clear intention. Meditation practice flourishes when it is supported by clear intention. So I wanted to talk about intention today and why Gill says that. It's such a huge part of the Dharma, intentional action a.k.a. karma, <laughs> for those of us using the Buddhist language. Skillful intention. I know myself and other students have had challenges understanding what it really means to be intentional with our Dharma practice. I think some of it comes from the fact that, at least for myself, coming from North American culture, which is highly individualistic, we have some challenges around the idea of freedom when it comes to the Dharma. There is the Dharma's idea of freedom, and then there's the American idea of freedom. And they're, <laughs> they're slightly different in very important ways. And the reason I focus on this is that in my experience growing up culturally, the idea of freedom was often equated with spontaneity. It was equated with an absence of planning. It was uh, me. It meant that you were not tied to goals. You weren't bound by structures or organizations, and things were sort of relative. So you could sort of make meaning how you chose. And there was this kind of idea of going with the flow. That freedom meant you just were spontaneous, and you could just go with whatever was present and flow with the experience that gave you the most pleasure. And that's what I grew up with. With this sort of North American ideal of freedom being not bound to anyone or anything and being able to choose whatever pleasure you wanted when you wanted. That was this kind of ideal freedom. And I'm not saying that any of those traits are unskillful in and of themselves, right? Spontaneity, wonderful, right? Being free from your calendar, awesome. <laughs> like I'm not saying that that isn't grand. Don't get me wrong. But there is an ideal in the West, particularly in North American culture, that freedom kind of means there's no rules, right? That you're beyond rules, 
that you're powerful enough, wealthy enough, stable enough that you can kind of do what you want, right? Without care. And the Dharma's idea of freedom is a little bit different. It's a little bit different than that. In the Dharma, I'm going to offer up a counter perspective and say, where in North American culture, there's this idea of going with the flow. I'm actually going to suggest that in the Dharma, our goal is to go against the flow, right? That it's in fact so different that we are going against the natural tendency of the mind to want to throw off all structure, all goals, all of anything. And that going against the flow is actually what allows us to free ourselves from suffering. And here's how I'll explain it in terms of the Dharma so you can see what I'm talking about here. Most often when we say we're going with the flow, we're actually giving over the wheel of consciousness, right? If we're in a car, we're handing over the wheel to the unconscious habits of the mind. We're saying, hey, let's just see what happens. And I'll give the heart and mind over to whatever they want and let's just be spontaneous. Hypothetically, it could turn out okay, but oftentimes when we're just going with the flow, that kind of flow, we're actually giving over control to the five hindrances. We're allowing craving and aversion and worry and fear and judgment to be in the driver's seat of our being. And so oftentimes, if we're just going to go with the flow of the natural mind, we are actually going with the flow of a mind that tends to be characterized by greed, hatred, and delusion. That's the natural state of the mind. That's the natural flow of energy from the mind is grasping and pushing away, craving and being averse to things, desiring sensual pleasures, distracting ourselves from pain. That's the actual flow of consciousness before it meets the Dharma. So in the Dharma, we're actually trying to go against that flow, right? We're actually trying to put some structure down. We're actually trying to create some aspiration and some intention about how we show up instead of going with the flow of a heart that tends to be oriented towards greed, hatred, and delusion. And I was thinking about this today and I know oftentimes, like when I think of greed, hatred, and delusion, those words don't always land for me very well. Um, they seem very reductionistic, and, and I know what they mean in the terms of the Dharma. You know, greed is craving, grasping, clinging, and hatred is the pushing away, being aversive to something, being judgmental, right? So we, we understand what those means. We know we all have experiences of that in our heart. And delusion, of course, in the Dharmic sense, literally means not imbibing the Four Noble Truths. It's the delusion about the nature of happiness and the delusion about the nature of suffering. So if we, <laughs> I thought to myself today, you know, if you want to just understand what it looks like for human beings to be going with the flow of greed, hatred, and delusion, you can just turn on the news. <laughs> it, it doesn't, you don't have to search for what this actually looks like in real life, right? In real life, when you look around the world, do you see intense greed and its consequences, right? Do you see intense hatred and its consequences? Do you see what happens when human beings just let go into the flow of the natural tendency of the mind? It's pretty nasty. Basically, the hindrances take over and drive the car off into a ditch. I mean, it, it gets very unpleasant very quickly 
when we don't live with discernment and intention, right? When we don't intend to show up in a particular way, the heart and mind have a tendency to show up uh, drunk and incoherent and, you know, unskillful in so many in so many ways if just letting it do what it wants to do at its nature. And again, I'm not saying that the heart doesn't have other beneficial natures, but from the perspective of the Dharma, the flow of consciousness is really pulled towards greed, hatred, and delusion unless, unless we cultivate some intention for it to show up otherwise. And so when Gil said that your practice flourishes when it's grounded in intention, that's what I want you to think about. I want you to think of the fact that part of the reason we practice the Dharma is to be intentional with how we live and go against the flow of the greed, the hatred, and the delusion. And I want to take this just one level deeper and say that when we, when we give over to this greed, hatred, and delusion, when we give over to this natural flow of the mind that is unguided by intention or aspiration, then essentially what we're doing is we're allowing the mind and the heart to be guided by non-conscious, right? Or mindless, if we will, right? Non-conscious, mindless, inherited habit patterns. Every moment that we are not engaging in intentionality, the mind automatically def defaults to the, to the factory settings, right? So it automatically falls back to the apps that were already downloaded, which were non-conscious, you didn't choose them, and they were inherited from your upbringing, your experiences, from your friends, from institutions, from culture. So before we get in there and decide to upload an app of compassion when we before we intend to show up with kindness and generosity what happens is the mind just goes on autopilot it reverts to its inheritance and that's the whole idea of karma that in the moment if we're not intentionally engaging mindfully the mind immediately switches to autopilot and simply engages non-consciously and acts out of inherited habit patterns, that is, past karma, right? So part of the reason that we are founding and building our practice on intentionality is to guide the present moment by discernment and balance and equanimity, compassion, right? So if intentionality is the foundation of the Dharma, our primary intention is to take the wheel out of the hands of the hindrances, right? To be able to use mindfulness to look at the inherited stuff, the unconscious mindless habit patterns, and replace them with intentional living. And this is a very proactive way of being. It's a way of being that requires some planning, it requires some goal setting, some aspirational thinking. And this is very much counter, and again, I'm speaking from my own upbringing in North American culture, that always seems very self-centered and pleasure is about what you can get, right? What you can accomplish, what you can achieve. And a lot of that is not intentional, right? We just sort of inherit this attitude of craving and greed. And we go with this flow that we've been brought up with. And until that flow meets a counterflow of intentionality, 
of mindfulness and discernment, it's just gonna, it's just gonna do what it does. And we know what it does when it lacks that discernment, when it lacks that compassion. When the mind is not bound by rules, when it is not walking a path and doesn't have some guidance on what might be skillful or unskillful, when we're lost in the fog of distraction and our hearts and minds are being tugged in one direction and pulled in another, that's when we have this sense of greed, hatred, and delusion. It's very difficult without imposing some kind of path onto life to really get to the point where we can live intentionally, which is why all aspects of the Eightfold Path are grounded in intention. They're grounded in intentionality. I aspire to be free from suffering, the foundational intention of the Dharma. And the highest aspiration which follows, I aspire to show up in the world so that others can also share in the fruits of that freedom and also be in service to the freedom of others. That's the intentionality that surrounds everything we do. Every time we be, every time we bring awareness to the breath or we scan a body part or we do a body part practice or say a mantra, all of that intention is oriented towards getting back into the driver's seat of our hearts and minds and taking those inherited habit patterns, looking at them and filtering them through some discernment, through some compassion, through some open heartedness. That is where intention lies in our practice. Again, I wanted to bring this back to this idea of freedom. And that sometimes we mistake chaos and we mistake an absence of morals for a type of freedom. And I guess you could say that is a type of freedom, doing whatever you want. One thing I noticed the last few years in COVID was that the more disconnected we became, the more isolated we became as communities, as countries, as whatever, individuals, as group, the more disconnection that happened, the more discourteous we became to each other. When we thought no one was looking, <laughs> right? Everything's locked down. Suddenly we can do what we want. The world becomes a different place more violence, more discontent. So the freedom from structure, the freedom from a path, in some ways, sure, there can be some benefit there, but the Dharma takes this stance that we wanna be intentional actually, right? We wanna show up with a goal. We wanna show up with an aspiration because that's what helps us to prevent these ancient, outdated habit patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion from taking hold. And so we might say, that the possibility of enlightenment actually exists because we have the capacity or the freedom to choose to be intentional. That's the freedom. The freedom of the Dharma is tapping into the freedom we have to show up intentionally. And when we do that, wow, so much healing, so much compassion, so much love, so much connection can arise from using that freedom to show up in a particular way and that human beings have that capacity to show up with intention, that is what the Dharma leverages as its goal. The Buddha understood, oh my gosh, look, the human heart and mind, we have freedom to show up in a particular way. We can choose to just react, right? 
to fall back on sort of the chaos of the heart and mind and just react however the heart and mind wants to do in any particular moment. Or we can stop, be mindful, and choose to respond with openness, with gentleness, with discernment and kindness. That choice that goes from reactivity, which is non-conscious and inherited and is the domain of the hindrances, is juxtaposed to this idea of being intentional. And when we're intentional, we get to open up our hearts in any way that we see fit in the present moment and bring that energy into our relationships, our relationship with ourself, our relationship with the world, our relationship with others. We can take that habit of a mind that tends to uh, lean itself towards negative brain bias, that leans itself towards discrimination and fear and judgment of the other. And we can sit in that space with mindfulness and completely intend something differently. That's a huge power of the human heart and mind to be able to set an intention and cultivate a skillful action and show up in a particular way. It's enormous that we can do that. And so we might look at suffering being stress and pain that is born of an absence of intentionality. And that freedom is born of mindfulness and intentional skillful actions. That's where the real beauty of the Dharma comes in. Mindful, intentional, skillful actions that are blameless, right? And are oriented towards our well-being every moment and to the well-being of everyone we come in contact with. <laughs> Whenever I talk about intentionality, I, I just find it really funny that human beings... I, I don't know much about this, actually. I, I haven't gone into a rabbit hole with researching this part of things, but I, I just think it's funny that human beings, if, if we're not intentional, right, with the way we live, if we're not choosing to show up in a particular way, I find it really amusing that there's a hundred people, I always think of this, there's a hundred people within a mile of where any of us are sitting right now who would love to tell you how to live. I mean, if you're not going to live intentionally, human beings love to tell people how to show up in the world. You can't, you're never going to be, there's never going to be a scarcity of other human beings who think they know better, right? They know what you should be doing, what you should be thinking, what you should be feeling, how you should be voting, how you should be doing this or that. And I just think that's funny. I just think it's funny as human beings, we, we love to know better. It's like what we do. I was, I was in a... This reminds me, I was in a philosophy class in, in my undergrad, and uh, on one of the days, the teacher came in and said, how many of you think the world would be a better place if people would act more like you? <laughs> right? <laughs> and everyone raised their hands. <laughs> right? So, I mean, there's, we're not, there's no scarcity of other people wanting to impose intentionality on everyone around them. So if you don't take charge of your own heart and your own mind, then we fall back on inherited habit patterns. And if we're not paying attention, we're going to continue to inherit other people's opinions, beliefs, attitudes that have not been filtered through discernment, right? Have not been filtered through mindfulness. You can, I mean, it's not required to be mindful, you can live a whole life in mindlessness. You don't have to do it. It's not like it's a race to the finish line. You can choose to live all kinds of different ways. 
the benefit of mindfulness is that you get to reinvent yourself in the world and actually play a role consciously on the life that you live. But that, of course, is juxtaposed to living a life where intentionality is not something you focus on and that you inherit the intentions of others and you just go along for the ride. This is why the Dharma has freedom at its core, because the freedom to choose to be intentional is so significant in everything we do as meditators. I like to use an example when talking about intentionality and this idea of kind of going with the flow. Let's remind ourselves of the second arrow parable. There's several versions of this that have evolved over the years. The one that often lands for me is the one that goes like this. So you've got the soldier on the battlefield and the soldier gets struck with an arrow. And we all know this parable by now. But the soldier gets struck with an arrow and the second soldier comes up and tries to remove the arrow. And the first soldier who is in pain and suffering with the arrow says, no, no, don't, don't pull out the arrow just yet. First, I want you to find out what kind of wood the arrow is made out of. And so the soldier finds out what wood it's made out of. And so he tries to pull it out and the soldier's like, wait, no, not yet. I need you to find out what kind of feathers are on the end of the arrow. And the parable goes on and on. I need you to find out who shot the arrow, right? How long did the arrow, what distance did the arrow travel before it struck me? Meanwhile, there's all this pain and all this dukkha. And the second soldier says, you know, it seems like every time you ask me to do this, it's like stabbing yourself with five other arrows. Why don't we just take the damn arrow out already and eliminate the suffering? That's a contemporary version of the story, of course. But the idea is that that first arrow is inevitable. We're human beings, we're vulnerable, and we're going to walk through the world and we're going to get stuck. Something's going to hit us, stimulate us, press a button. There's going to be physical pain and things like that. And that's just human beings in a human world. And that we can't do anything about. We expect that to happen. But we can pull the arrow out or continue <laughs> to engage in a reactivity, which is like being stabbed over and over again. The second arrow and the third arrow and the 10th arrow, that we can control. Because those arrows are caused by reactivity versus mindful response and intentionality to the situation, right? The other arrows are caused by the hindrances being at the wheel, where the freedom from suffering, pulling those arrows out is the enlightenment factors, right? Intentionally showing up in a different way with love, compassion, joy. So we have this ability to either react or respond intentionally. And so the analogy I like here is actually of a first responder, right? This idea of a first responder. I really like this analogy. A first responder is like a firefighter or a paramedic, right? A first responder is someone who comes onto the scene where there is suffering, where there is some accident, where someone is in pain, someone is in need. The first responder is the person who shows up on the scene with the intention of ending the suffering as quickly as possible or putting a dampening on the suffering so more help can arrive, right? The first responder is someone who actually intentionally seeks out the suffering to make the suffering end. They lean into the suffering, right? They choose to show up in the line of fire 
and instead of running away from the burning building, they go into the burning building. Oh, look, there's Duca. Okay, I'm there. So a first responder intends to, makes a commitment and an intention to show up and actually seek out the Duca. And it's not random or arbitrary. The first responder intentionally goes through training, has a plan, shows up with tools, hopefully, that they can use to put out the fire or help a broken leg or whatever the case may be. They're there with tools and a plan and skills to try to end the suffering as quickly as possible. And this requires incredible intention, right? Incredible discipline and courage and aspiration. A first responder aspires to free others from suffering, right? Aspires to seek out the dukkha and be a cause for the end of suffering. And this is essentially what we do as meditators, right? As meditators, we want to be first responders to the present moment. Why? Because the present moment is where suffering is occurring. So we use mindfulness to spend as much time in the present moment as we can to get into the present moment as quickly as possible. Why? So we can find the dukkha. So we can find the stress and the discontent and the hatred and the judgment in our hearts. We want to find it as quickly as possible and we want to prevent the second, third, fourth arrows from happening. That's the process of being a first responder. And I like the metaphor because it really is almost literal in what we're trying to do. As meditators, if we go with the flow, the natural flow is to not want to lean into suffering. If we go with the flow, we're going to deny the suffering, we're going to distract ourselves from it, we're going to seek sensual pleasures to alter our state of consciousness so we don't have to really taste the deep suffering of the human experience. If we are going to go with the flow, that means we're not going to be reflective on how who we are in the world is hurting other beings, even if it's unconscious harm. So we intend to go against the flow. We run into the burning building. We lean and work ourselves into the suffering. And then when we get there, we use the tools, we use our discipline and our aspiration and a strong intentionality to heal ourselves and stand up to be in service to the healing of others. So that's the analogy there that I like so much is that it's intentional, right? We show up with significant intentionality. And because the pull, the pull of the, <laughs> of the hindrances is so strong, right? The flow of the heart and mind is so strong that if we don't act with some intentionality, it's really hard to engage in spiritual practice because the mind man, the mind doesn't want to be aware of breathing in and breathing out. It's boring. There's not, The mind doesn't want to do that, right? And being angry feels good, makes us feel powerful, right? Not having to worry about other human beings and just worry about ourselves. The mind likes that. The mind likes to do that. It has the potential to do its opposite, but it's much easier to be selfish than it is to being compassionate. It's much easier to be closed-minded than to be discerning. It's much easier to allow the heart and mind just to run wild versus applying some equanimity, right? That takes some energy, some skill, and some discernment, and some practice, as we, as we know. Because even when we show up with intention and we invite the mind to be quiet and be calm and to be joyous, you know, it just tells us 
no, I'm going to go do something else. It's just like an untrained puppy just runs around and does something else. So that's why I wanted to highlight this one line that Gil Franzel says, which is our practice really flourishes when there's intentionality. And so one of the things we're invited to do is practice as practitioners is evaluate our intention moment to moment. What do I, what do I want to get out of my practice? Right? Why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I sitting, why am I sitting on a cushion for an hour? Right? Why am I going on retreat? This takes a lot of time, money, energy. What am I doing this for? So what I want to do is go back to some of these questions that Gil asked and just throw them back out there. If I can find them, hold on a second. Here we go. I just wanted to make a couple comments that you can take with you about intentionality and, and goal setting that uh, Gil talks about Hill. So he said he makes this great distinction. He says, we can have this intention towards long-term goals. We can have an intention to pursue some short-term goals. And he makes this third distinction that's really beautiful. He says, we can, what does he call them? He calls them modest aims. That it's really helpful to have modest aims in our practice, right? It's easy to say, okay, I want to focus on being less anxious. Wonderful. And we can say, I want to focus on getting to the first jhana. Long-term goal. Great. Nothing wrong with that. But what Gil points out here, which I think is so powerful, is that it's easy to forget those modest aspirations and those simple successes in our practice that are the foundation for all of the other goals that we might, might set for ourselves. And it's so easy to forget how powerful a simple goal is in practice. So for example, I always come back to the beauty and amazement of, I think it's the second line in the Sai Patana. Breathing in long and knowing the breath is long and breathing in short and knowing the breath is short and breathing out long and knowing the breath is long and breathing out short and knowing the breath is short. I find it amazing that the Buddha found that to be something that we work on. That simple noticing of whether our breath is long or short. And it's so easy to get involved in wanting, you know, laser shows and whatever, right? Smoke and fireworks and all of this stuff in our practice. But can we set our aspiration to be so simple and beautiful as saying, you know, I'm going to really work on noticing whether my breath is long or short. It seems kind of dumb, right? And it seems trite compared to liberation from suffering and liberation of all beings. But these modest aims that Gil talks about are so important because we can overlook the simplicity and the profundity of just being able to be mindful of an inhale, being mindful of an exhale. I noticed in my own practice, and I have to say every few months I'll come across a student who says, I'm not sure if the practice is working. And most of the time, once we start talking, they start noticing, oh, oh yeah, the practice is doing all kinds of stuff. It's because they're looking at more of these short and long-term goals that are larger and not realizing, oh my gosh, you know, sometimes I'll notice that I'm angry. I never noticed that before. I notice it before I actually say something to someone. I'll notice that I'm angry. 
or I'll notice how anxiety feels. Like I'll notice it in my chest. That might seem like, okay, well, yeah, so what? That's the, that's the amazing, you know, profundity of the Dharma that we can intend to be awake and aware to how fear feels like when it arises in the heart. That, that can change worlds, our ability to do something as simple as that. So I would invite you as we move into the beginning of 2023 to ask yourself or remind yourself, may I be intentional? May I be awake and aware to the modest successes of the practice, the simple beauty of equanimity, right? The simple brilliance of a moment of discernment where you notice something is unskillful or skillful and, and maybe you don't catch it in time, right? Maybe it's in retrospect, but you did bring it into awareness, right? You brought some intentionality into the world. You brought some wakefulness into the world. I mean, just imagine how the world would change on a global scale if every human being took a few moments every day just to notice a long breath and a short breath, right? Imagine how a heart of a human being changes when that small intention comes into the world. You know, we have these lofty intentions, of course, and they're great, as Gil says. I mean, yes, you want to, there's no, there's no need not to dream, right? We can all have high aspirations. I do. But I like to remind myself, especially at the beginning of the year, that, man, those small things in the Dharma are so, so incredible. Being able to watch agitation arise and turn towards gentleness or notice a little contraction in the heart and breathe through it, that changes, that changes everything. Those small little modest achievements, so to speak, can be huge. And I want to read again the ones that he says here, because I just think it's so cool. Experience of realization may be a worthy long-term goal, but in the short term, it can be useful to have modest aims, such as cultivating small but noticeable improvements in concentration, non-distraction, compassion, or patience small little things. Another thing that we forget as meditators, if you remember when you weren't meditating, <laughs> it's hard for me to remember life a little bit before meditation at this point, but I still remember being much angrier, much more agitation in my mind. My mind would race and I would ruminate on things for days. Mind doesn't do that in the same way anymore, right? Rumination comes up, I notice it and I can let go. What an incredible privilege of practice, right? To be able to do that small turn of awareness away from clinging, away from craving, and just noticing small notice, uh, small moments of compassion. Like one of the things I, I notice in myself, in retrospect, I can't believe how selfish I was when I was younger. I was just so like self-centered, very selfish. And nowadays, I'll notice when this selfishness arises. I can see that contraction of the heart where... I'm like mine, right? Me, I come first. <laughs> I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get my way here. You know, I can feel that contraction, and part of me hates that I can feel the contra <laughs> feel the contraction. I'm like, damn you, Dharma, just like leave me alone for a minute. You know, just let me, let me be angry and grudgy and judgmental of this other human being. Can I just say this person sucks without feeling that twinge in my heart? Life used to be so great before the Dharma because then I could just be an ass and I didn't have to be accountable to anybody. <laughs> so that's like the beauty is when you catch yourself in the act, right? That small moderate aim is just catching yourself 
in the act and being able to turn towards goodness. It's so, it's so great that we can take joy in that process. And I, I do believe that if we can't at least look and accept and acknowledge those small accomplishments, it is very hard to see the big ones on the way, right? And it's hard to see that those big ones are just expressions of the small ones, right? Our ability to do these little tiny things with our enlightenment factors, the little awareness shift in discernment leads to huge changes in our life over time as we build the practice on these tiny little moments of mindfulness, these tiny little moments of intentionality, of bringing intention online and going against the flow of greed and hatred and delusion. So I think that's my take on Gill's second section here. So just in conclusion, the essay again is on evaluating practice. So you might just choose in this next week between now and the time we meet up again is just asking yourself, what are my intentions? You know, that gentle awareness, that gentle inquiry. What are my intentions these days? And you could actually look at the questions that uh, Gil asks and you can ask yourself, okay, what is my short-term intention with the Dharma these days? Where is there some suffering that I really want to get in there and be awake and aware of like where is where is my heart contracted and find out where that is maybe it's a circumstance or in a relationship with a person or there's something going on with you and your kids or you and your job and look for the look for the dukkha be a first responder get in get on the scene you know aspire to get there quickly and say okay what's going on here and then check in with your long-term aspirations as a meditator and really ask yourself what am, what am i doing with my practice this year I always like to ask, if you're going to celebrate something a year from now, what intention would you have gained some ground on? And then again, as Gil says, can you move through your day? Just be mindful of the small things. Just noticing, being awake and aware as the heart turns one way or this way, thought moves this way or that way. The beauty of it all. Beauty of a simple breath. Thank you, my friends, for being a part of this community and joining us in Sangha. Very much enjoy your company, even though it's on a screen or through a podcast. I still feel like we're connected. <laughs> we're going to end right on time this evening. So next week, we're going to talk about something that Gil explains, which is really interesting. So in, in this uh, paragraph here, he talks about motivation but then in the next paragraph, what he talks about is evaluating who you are as a person and asking yourself, for me personally, what kind of dharma is helpful? Meaning, with my disposition, how do I best learn the dharma, right? How do I best engage in particular? What practices are good for me? And this really taps into something that uh, we've talked about before and I've given whole Dharma talks on, which is owning the path, right? Making the path your own. And remembering that we walk in the Buddha's footsteps, but in the end, we it's our feet, right? That have to traverse the terrain. And so I'm excited about this next part of uh, his Dharma talk because it talks about essentially personalizing the path and looking at ourselves and asking ourselves, what kind of Dharma student am I? You know, what helps me to really learn the Dharma? So I'm excited about sharing that with you uh, next week. It's a, it's, a cool little, it's a cool little segment. Let's offer some gentle intention to the world, my friends.
let's take a moment to value presence. Let's bring awareness to the present moment. Let's intend to value presence over distraction, openness over contraction, love, joy, and compassion above greed, hatred, and delusion. Let us intend to be awake and aware, ardent, alert, and mindful. Let us ground ourselves in the breathing body, finding some pleasure there, some calm. Let us cultivate a touch of gratitude for everyone who joined us this evening. The generosity of showing up in community. That thankfulness for the other. Our spiritual friends who support us in practice. Who came together this evening to create that moment of Wednesday wake up. And let us intend to take the fruits of this evening and share the benefit with all beings. Let us wish that all beings be free from harm and that all beings awaken to the true cause of happiness in this very lifetime. And let's conclude this evening by answering this question. If you could wish anything for all beings and know the wish would come to pass, what would that wish be?
thank you, my friends. Be well. See you soon. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.